In the middle of Luke chapter 12, we have a precious gem from our Lord Jesus. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What a great word. Especially, I think of this word for those of us who may struggle sometimes to to think that, that God delights in us. I don't know if that's a natural way of thinking for you about God. I know in a lot of my life I struggled with that. To think that he delights in us and it's, it's his pleasure to give us what he has in store for us. But particularly here we're focusing on giving us the kingdom. Now in the context of Luke chapter 12, he's actually dealing with worry. He's dealing with, with our, we get caught up in our earthly security, what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear, how we're just going to take care of our daily stuff and meet our needs. He says, don't let that be the focus of your life. That's what the world's focused on. You make the kingdom your first priority. Seek that. And God will take care of the other things. Don't be afraid because God, it's God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what he's saying there. And the, the very next thought he says is also striking. He says, so sell all your possessions. <laughs> I mean, it's not just don't worry about meeting the needs. It's like, let go of it. <laughs> so that's the focus of Jesus at that, in that context. But this morning, I want us to hear this, this pleasure of God to give us the kingdom through the lens of Daniel. We've been seeing in Daniel the sovereign reign of God. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his people, this book, Daniel, was written for his people while the world around them doesn't look that way. It doesn't look like God's in control. And it doesn't look like we're inheriting the kingdom. In fact, it's just the opposite. In their case, their country had been destroyed and they'd been deported. And the book is written to comfort them, encourage them, give them strength and hope to say, God is reigning. God is working out his purposes. God's kingdom is everlasting. And today we're going to see a vision of God's kingdom for his people. God is going to give us his kingdom. And so the words of Jesus, hear them. Don't be afraid. Whatever's happening in your life, whatever's happening in your world, in your circumstances, don't be afraid. God delights to give you what he has in store for his people. The end of Daniel chapter 6 last week. Daniel 6, remember what that is? That's the lion's den. Daniel in the lion's den. Great word of this. At the very end of the chapter, Daniel 6, it says, He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Don't be afraid. It's God's good pleasure. Your father's, really, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now we're moving into Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, we're going to see the triumph of the Son of Man. Messiah receives his kingdom, and it's an enduring kingdom, but it's our kingdom as well, because the Father is delighted to give that to all of us. If you haven't found it already, go ahead and turn to it, Daniel 7. Now, we're coming into the second half of Daniel. The first half of Daniel has been historical narrative. That is, we have stories, we have accounts of things that happened. Daniel, remember at the beginning of the book, 
refuses the king's food. And then in the second, there's a dream by Nebuchadnezzar, or that Nebuchadnezzar has of a great statue. And we'll hear a little bit more about that, that. And then we hear about the fiery furnace. We hear about the handwriting on the wall, Daniel in the lion's den. That's all been historical narrative. Now we're shifting into visions of what God has in the future, what God is going to be working out in human history. And Daniel 7 is the pivotal point in all of this. These visions, there are four of them, six chapters. So the book chapter-wise divides very nicely six and six. But there are four visions in these last six chapters. And these visions are what are called in biblical scholarship apocalyptic literature. Now, easy way to understand that idea of apocalyptic for us as Bible people is simply think of the book of Revelation. You get in the book of Revelation, you have all of those very symbolic and very, in many ways, kind of strange visions. And that's what we're going to be encountering as we move into this. The word apocalyptic is simply from the Greek word, which means revelation. And revelation means to unveil or to uncover, to pull back the curtain. You think sometimes of the unveiling of a great painting or a great sculpture where it's covered. And at the dramatic moment, they pull off the covering and you reveal, you unveil. That's what the word apocalyptic means. It's an unveiling, a revealing. The Greek word is found right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, in fact, where it says in verse 1, you can see it on the screen, the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. Now, what is apocalyptic literature? In particular, just a brief description this morning. And like so many things, and definitions sometimes aren't simple and black and white, but we can give you a basic framework to understand what this is about. In our popular English, when we use the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, we have a sense of doom, a sense of impending end of the world. The foundations are being shaken, and things are just, the world's collapsing, there's great destruction and devastation. You may remember the movie Apocalypse Now. It's a Vietnam movie. There's that sense, you know, of this dramatic, the world is just bombs everywhere. And I love the smell of napalm in the morning kind of scenes of great destruction and devastation. Well, biblically, there's a little more to apocalyptic than just doom and the end of the world. Biblically, list of characteristics for you. Apocalyptic literature is, as all of Scripture is, a revelation from God. But it comes through an angel or some other kind of heavenly figure in the form of dreams and visions using a high degree of symbolism and numerology. And it usually is in a time of persecution, a time of crisis, a sense that what's happening? Where is God? The world seems to be coming apart. But the major theme and the major focus, and very much so in Daniel chapter 7, is that these visions look forward to the end, the end of all things. They're eschatological. There's another big word which simply refers to the end, end times. We think of prophecy today, we usually think of end times. A prophecy itself is not so much limited to the end times. But in this case, apocalyptic literature, Daniel and the book of Revelation, are looking ahead to the end to that final conflict and that final triumph of the kingdom of God over the kingdoms of this world. And again, the purpose of this, like we've been saying all the way through the book of Daniel, and it is, by the way, the purpose of the book of Revelation as well. 
These things are not given to us to be sensational. They're not given to us so we can write out these and draw out these detailed prophetic charts and try to pinpoint from the news every day exactly what's going on and how that fits into the scheme of biblical prophecy. They're given to us to reassure us. They're given to us to comfort us and to strengthen us and to enable us to be strong, to, as Daniel puts it in 1132, to stand firm and take action in the middle of what we're experiencing, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of oppression, in the middle of things not seeming to be working out as we might expect God to work them out. They're given to us to reassure us that God is root reigning and that God is accomplishing his purposes. This has not escaped his notice or escaped his control and he will bring it to his appointed end and his kingdom will be victorious and he will give it to his people. Don't be afraid. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, there's a couple of extremes. There are two extremes that people go to when they get to these kinds of scriptures, to this part of the Bible. One extreme is to look for all kinds of specific detail. Kind of already said that, where we draw detailed charts and try to pinpoint everything that's going on in the news. That's one extreme. Another extreme is to say, well, these visions really don't refer to anything specific in history. They're just a kind of a broad picture that's painted for us to reassure us that God's in control. I think both extremes are not the way to approach these. You want to look at them. You want to see the big picture. You want to understand and get what's being described for you. There are specific things that are going to be said about There are specific things in history that are going to be referred to. We'll see that today. Specific kingdoms. We can even name the kings, looking backward in history, that these would refer to. But we don't necessarily try to derive some detailed message out of every little nuance or every little detail in the text. And we'll also try to illustrate that today as we work through it. Let's turn now, look at Daniel chapter 7. Commentators consider this to be one of the single most important chapters in the Bible, or I'm sorry, in the book of Daniel. One commentator calls it the heart of the book of Daniel. Another, it would be no exaggeration to say that this chapter is one of the most important passages of the Old Testament. Another calls it the center of gravity of the whole book and one of the summits of Scripture. That might come as a little surprise to you. You think, wow, If that's true, I maybe should have known this chapter more, should have been more aware of this chapter. I think maybe part of the reason for for that for us is we have the New Testament. We have further understanding of what's going on here. And to a certain extent, to a certain extent, I think we begin to take it for granted. Like those commercials that are on these days, you know, you can save 15% in 15 minutes. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that Jesus is going to win. Okay, listen carefully. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to appropriate it. They're not the same thing. And what I'm hoping for as we work through this is a deeper appropriation of this. 
By that I mean that it really begins to, to sink deeply into us and shape how we're living. If you think back to the context of Luke chapter 12, for example, what Jesus was saying about God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, he was saying that ought to liberate you from your things. You could sell them all, knowing that God's going to take care of you. You can, you can not worry so much about making sure you've got all of the earthly securities lined up, that your retirement plan is perfectly on schedule for you to have that million plus you're going to need to maintain your lifestyle when you hit 65. Because that's not what you're living for. You're living for his kingdom. That's what we're talking about, appropriating. Not just knowing, but appropriating so that it really begins to affect and shape life. This vision gives us the sweep in Daniel 7, the sweep of history from the Babylonian Empire, the time of Daniel, all the way to the end when God destroys the Antichrist and gives the kingdom to his son and to his people. And yes, in one sense, we New Testament people, that's well-known truth, but again, that is truth that's meant to shape the way we're living and making decisions about life right now. And so let us learn to appropriate and more than we have before. One commentator put it this way. Once convinced of the truth this chapter is proclaiming, the reader is in, the pos- in possession of the key to history. The international scene is not out of hand for it is in God's hand. And individual lives find their meaning in relation to his kingdom. We'll spend a lifetime really appropriating that, won't we? So far, many years, God's been working that deeper and deeper into me. And I think I still have a long ways to go. Let's begin at verse 1. There are four great beasts that arise from the sea. Now we're going to see the vision, scene number 1. Four great beasts arising from the sea. Verse 1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now this is taking place in the time of Belshazzar. You'll remember he is chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall. And historically, when we got to chapter 6, he's already gone. Persia's already conquered Babylon. and They're gone. Now we're backing up chronologically. This this vision was given to Daniel, it says, in the first year of King Belshazzar. Chapter 5 is his last night, the end of his reign and his life. So we don't know exactly when the date was, but probably somewhere between 556 and 552. Somewhere in there when he was made co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. We're not told specifically what's going on or why the vision is given at that particular time. The fact that we're given that historical note would suggest that something was going on at that point in time for the people of God that that their circumstances were particularly dire. And that this vision was given to them at that moment in history for their strengthening, for their encouragement, to, to help them to know that God is reigning and that it is going to be his pleasure to give them his kingdom. 
Daniel, by this point, is probably in his late 60s. And he's been working and serving in the kingdom for a long time. I want you to notice something in verse 1, and we're going to see it as we work through um, the rest of the vision here. I want you to see, uh, in verse 1, we don't have what are grammatically called passive verbs. But the rest of the vision, we're going to see what we sometimes call divine passives. This was done, or this happened too. Here it just simply says in verse 1, it's active, but it's the same basic idea or same point I want to make. It says, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head. There's an unnamed player here. The fact that he saw visions, that didn't arise from his own imagination. That wasn't something he ate for dinner. There's an unnamed player, and we want to notice that. We want to be careful to see that. He will be named. But in the first part of the vision, verses 1 to 8, as we're seeing the sea being stirred up, and we're seeing these beasts come out of the sea, there's an unnamed player behind all of it. And don't miss that, because that is really, in so many ways, the point of the whole thing. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. What you have here at the beginning is a, is, is a violent storm. Winds from all directions are blowing, and the sea is, stirring, is stirred. I mean, if you were in a boat in this sea, you would fear for your life, probably drowned. The great sea that's mentioned here could be the Mediterranean, but not necessarily. It could simply just be a, any great sea. The point of what sea it is is not what sea it is, but simply that you're looking. Daniel is, Daniel's asleep, and he's seeing this, this ocean violently stirred by these winds. Now, here's a case in point where I would suggest we don't try to find meaning in every little thing. Well, what does the wind signify? and What does the sea signify? We're told what the sea is later in the vision. The sea or the nations, the, the earth, the humanity. And that's enough. We don't have to press it any further than that. And what are the winds exactly? Well, I don't think we have to press that either. If you read in the book of Daniel three times, two other cases, I'll, I'll just have them put up on the screen for you without spending a lot of time there. When it talks about the four winds of heaven, it's just talking here in those other two examples that you see on the screen of the, direct, the four compass points. It's not symbolizing anything in particular. So here you have Daniel is seeing this picture. And try to remember this and try to, to, to get into this a little bit. Daniel is not reading this in a book like we do. Daniel is experiencing this. He's describing what he sees or what, later on what he saw that night in his dream. We're going to see as we get toward the end. It'll be next week actually we'll see it. But at the very end of this this uh, whole account, Daniel is just disturbed. It's because he's not simply reading his Bible and trying to understand some theology or some prophecy or some eschatology or something. He's seeing this. And imagine you're seeing this violent storm happening, and then out of the sea start to arise these incredible creatures. And they're terrifying. Later on, of course, this is followed up. The scene's not going to stay on the sea forever because that's not the end of the story and that's not the main focal point. 
But I just wanted to point out to you that, in my estimation at least, this is a point at which we don't try to press the details too far. That the winds stand for something and the ocean stands for lots of this and that and the other thing. It's humanity. It's a, clearly a picture of the nations in turmoil. As Isaiah 17 says, all the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. All the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee away. Verse 3, we come to the four beasts. The four beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. I'm going to put up a chart for you on the screen there. We won't spend a lot of time on it, but just want to show you that these four creatures parallel the four parts of the statue in chapter 2. So you see that great statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, head of gold, arms and chest of silver, middle of bronze, legs of iron, and so forth. These four beasts are going to parallel those four parts of the statue referring to exactly the same kingdoms. I'm also going to give you a picture. This is just one artist's rendition. A picture's worth a thousand words. Looked around at all kinds of pictures, and there's all kinds of weird ones out there. <laughs> Interesting. The fourth beast. I chose this one because I kind of like the fourth beast standing in the background there. Because the fourth one, he, he's not able to really say what it's like. One's like a lion. One's like a bear. One's like a leopard. But this fourth one's kind of indescribable. Not familiar to Daniel. There's no animal he can compare this to. And when you look at all these various artist renditions online, you find lots of dinosaurs and other kinds of figures. But I like this one. He looked pretty terrifying. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. That's all said. You keep reading, you go right on to the next animal, so you stop for a minute and go, what's going on here? What's this all about? Let me note before I forget to do it, the divine passives that I was referring to. Now we do come to passive voices in the, in the verbs here. Verse 4, then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. Plucked off by who? By what? It was lifted up. From the ground, it was made to stand, and the mind of a man was given to it. Now think back to chapter 2, that dream, and think forward to chapter 4. And What happens to Nebuchadnezzar, you'll understand this vision. What we're just being clued into here is the fact that this first beast represents Babylon. And the experience of Nebuchadnezzar, when he, his power was taken from him, he was given a seven-year period of insanity. And then his sanity was restored, and he became a more sane and rational and reverent emperor. I've also brought some maps along. Just those of you that like maps, you kind of want to see where this is. Others of you, if you're not real familiar with, with kind of the maps of the world or maybe the maps of the Middle East... I'm not sure this is going to necessarily connect right away, but let me just see if I can make my pointer work. And real quickly, this is, this is Israel right here, okay? This is Egypt. And Africa is this big whole continent over here. And then you've got the Middle East. So you've got Iraq and, and Iran, and you're moving over this way to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and on over toward India. And that's where we're looking at right now. And so you're looking here at the Babylonian Empire 
Note something here that's crucial in understanding all of history and certainly all of biblical history. Where is Israel? It's right in the middle between the great powers that have warred for control, Egypt and over here. And of course, it's not on this map yet, but you'll see this is Turkey behind the little white sign, and the other maps will kind of show some of this. But the great powers that we're looking at at that time and even again in our time, as they war for control, they march directly through Israel. They need to control Israel. That's part of the explanation of the suffering of Israel. Verse 5, we come to the next beast, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Now we're looking ahead. When Daniel received this vision, this had not yet begun. But God is letting Daniel and his people know what they can anticipate coming in the future. The bear represents the Medes and the Persians. That was chapter 6. Darius or Darius, who has conquered Babylon and is reigning there. And Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6. One side raised up signifies that the Persians, in this, in this alliance between the Medes and the Persians, the Persians were dominant. They were the more powerful partner. And the three ribs probably speak of three of the major conquests. They conquered Lydia. Again, if you look at the map here, Lydia would be over here. They conquered Lydia, they conquered Egypt, and they conquered uh, Babylon. They, their kingdom, Persia and Media, being right in here. But they also conquered further over toward Afghanistan and Pakistan. They're, they're encouraged that this bear is told to conquer much, or devour much flesh. They conquered a lot of territory. The Persian Empire was a great empire in the ancient world. Verse 6, we come to the third. And I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This leopard represents the Greek empire that was founded by Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great was a great conqueror. He conquered a lot of territory. A leopard is a fast animal. The wings of the leopard would give it even greater than natural and normal speed. With a space of about 10 years, he conquered all of this beginning over in Macedonia, Greece area, all the way to the borders of India. He died when he was only 32 years old. It's amazing to think about this. Starting in his early 20s, and he conquered all of this territory. And then he died at an early age. His generals, who's going to be in charge now? The generals go to war. Four of them end up in civil war and dividing and splitting up the kingdom that he had uh, developed. And so you have the four heads on this leopard. Verse 7, we come to the fourth of the beasts. And after this, I saw the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. Nothing, I, he can't liken it to a specific familiar animal. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This signifies the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, what do you remember about the statue from chapter 2, the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream? 
What about those feet? There were ten toes. They were mixed with iron and clay. These ten horns here represent ten kings. We're told that later on in the chapter. And they correspond to the ten toes of the statue in chapter 2. This is Rome with its great power. Rome conquering more probably than the others had conquered. Goes on in verse 8, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn. So there are these ten horns. Horns on an animal represent its power. It's, it, it's, it's a weapon for an animal. And these horns represent the power and authority of kings. And a, another horn, it says a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. I think that probably the horn starts out little and it grows, and as it grows bigger, it displaces these other three. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, speaking of intelligence and mouth, speaking great things. Again, later in the chapter, we hear of his boastful defiance against God and against everything good and righteous. There's going to be some great ruler, powerful, but also defying God, boastful. We'll get into all of this. The second part of the chapter, when, which is interpretation, Daniel has given some explanation of what this means. We're just going to start that explanation today because it gives us the overall picture. Next week, we'll spend some time really breaking down a little more what this little horn is all about and the mouth speaking great things. But for now, just understand you've got this ruler that comes up. And he is powerful. He is brilliant. He is also arrogant. And he defies the very heavens. Now, that's the scene. That's the vision. That's what Daniel is seeing there as he is assuming asleep. But now we see something else. Now there's a shift, a dramatic shift, and it is the most important shift of all. It is significant, and we need this desperately. This is the word that begins to give us hope and give us encouragement. You see a terrifying storm at sea and these these incredible creatures coming out of it and being told that they're powerful and they're going to conquer and devour and stamp out. And so comes now this dramatic but most significant shift beginning in verse 9. Turmoil, struggle, and strife among the nations. That's what you and I see. That's what our world looks like from our vantage point. We, as Scripture says, we see the outward appearance. But now the curtain is going to be drawn back. And we're going to get to see what's really significant and important in all of this. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed. Not just a throne, but thrones, suggesting that there's some kind of a, a royal court being set up here. That, would, that, that suggests to me, and one of the quite interesting questions here, it's not necessary to really be dogmatic or make a final decision, but one of the interesting questions is where exactly is this scene taking place? Is this in heaven? Or on earth. I mean, naturally, I've just sort of read through this and just not thought that much about it and assumed heaven. 
We got an earthly scene of all these beasts, heavenly scene of the throne room of God. I would suggest read a little more carefully that this scene is probably taking place on earth where these beasts are operating. Because one reason I would suggest that is because it says thrones were placed. Thrones are being set up. A, A place is being made ready. I think the throne room of heaven is there. It doesn't need to be set up. And then we'll see eventually one described as being like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. That suggests he's descending and he's coming down to the earth. Now, as I said, not just throne, a throne, but thrones. In the midst of these thrones where there would be powerful and elevated figures, there's got to be a central throne. And we're told that the Ancient of Days comes and takes his seat. Verse 9. What a glorious title. The Ancient of Days. Almost don't even want to comment on it. Almost just let it speak. It says so much. Already you get a sense of glory, majesty, splendor. And you get a sense that this is a king who is wise. This is a king who's been around. This is a king who knows the score. This is a king who has reigned and knows how to handle his authority. How ancient are the days of this king? I love Psalm 90's description. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our conception of ancient falls short of who God is. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. That sounds familiar. Read that somewhere before in the New Testament, didn't you? Or as a watch in the night, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. You have to live in a place that's a little drier and warmer to kind of get the picture of that kind of grass. Southern California helps. Okay. The hills are green for about three days in the spring. You know? And then they're brown. The years, the thousands of years to God are just like that grass that's gone in a short while. He is the ancient of days. His vision, I'm sorry, his clothing, it says in the vision, was white as snow. Picture again of dignity. You you can see this king now in this great white robe, but the whiteness also speaks. Obviously, there's dignity, there's splendor, but but righteousness, holiness, purity. This is is the God of holiness, the thrice holy God, the God of Isaiah's vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God omnipotent. And the hair of his head, like pure wool, I'm liking that more and more. Speaks obviously of age, (laughs) but it speaks here also of dignity. You can just see the dignity of this king, but it speaks also of his wisdom. 
This is a wise, experienced. You, you think of one who is old, but not elderly. Does that make sense? He's old, but he's not decrepit. He's old, but he still bears strength and power and majesty. And it says his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. This, this throne has wheels. Apparently, it's designed to move. Apparently, he isn't stuck in one place because he sits enthroned over all things. He is everywhere. He is not limited to one location. Flames, what do you think of? Try to picture this. Just, just in your imagination now, you're looking at this, this majestic figure seated on a throne, and the throne is looking like it's on fire. That's, I think, a picture of power. And I think it's also a threatening picture. It's a picture that's, that's to some extent, terrifying. Fire in Scripture speaks of judgment. Fire consumes. Fire destroys. On the, on the positive side, fire also purifies. So it won't destroy everything. But it will consume that which must be destroyed. It also says in this, again, as you just try to picture this, because more than teaching something, it's, it's to to, to see what Daniel was seeing. He's, he's describing, he's trying to help us get the picture that he was getting. Now it says there was a, a, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. That sounds to me like a river of lava. Like a volcano, is, it's kind of flowing out. And what, what, what's going to happen if there's a river of lava flowing outward? It is definitely going to consume what's in its path. And then thousand thousands serve him. Here's another case where don't go crazy. The numbers don't need to be. This is not a precise head count. It meant to convey something to us. It's like when you say to your kids, I told you a thousand times, or I've told you a million times. Okay? You're making a point here, and that's, that's the way these numbers are being used here. But even if you do... If you do the math, it enhances the majesty of this, of this vision of God. A thousand thousand is how many? That's a million. It says a million are serving this king. And what's 10,000 times 10,000? That's a hundred million. There's a hundred million people surrounding this throne while one million serve the king. You get the sense of who this person is. And that's the point. When we were singing that second song today, the glory of God, one of the most urgent needs we have in our lives is to see God as he is, to know him in his greatness. It's why we're given visions like this. People in exile, people suffering, people oppressed, people being persecuted, people when life isn't going their way need this kind of a vision of God. 
Nothing is more urgent, really, for us that our sense of God be elevated, enlarged, magnified. And I would just urge you, whatever you would need to do, one of the most basic things that we all need to do in this regard is to spend regular, consistent time in this book. I don't mean just Daniel. I mean the Scriptures. And we're at the beginning of the calendar year. It's a good time to renew that habit of reading Scripture consistently and on a daily, regular basis. If you're not doing that now, why do that? It's because your soul is being fed and nourished constantly on the truth of the Word of God. This isn't some kind of legalistic duty for you to have to do or feel guilty about. This is to make sure that you are taking in what is life transforming and what is soul strengthening and what will elevate for you your knowledge of and your view of God. So your God is not too small. Because it's when our God is too small that we're unable to appropriate this truth. Now, there are lots of other ways. If you're in a community group, in the, in the, in the interaction of saints, interaction of each other's lives, sharing with each other, wrestling through this, discussing truth together, praying together also, that's why it's so important for you to spend time, not just sitting and listening to a sermon on Sunday, but time with other believers where you can have focused spiritual interaction, where you pray together, where you interact around the truth of God together, where you think about serving and doing mission together. We need that. If you compare the amount that's being pumped into your mind and your soul on a daily basis through the popular media and music and television, all of those things. And how much nourishment on the things of God that you are taking in. We need so much of these things. We need especially a vision of God and His greatness That is what will enable us to meet life with strength and with courage, unafraid, unintimidated, not blown away by the stuff that comes. Notice now as this picture of God on his throne proceeds, it says, the court sat in judgment. We're not just taking a random peek into the throne room of God here. You've got these nations rising up out of the sea of humanity. They're powerful. They even inflict great harm on God's own people. Yet God sits on the throne. A day comes when the court will sit in judgment. And it says the books were opened. In a courtroom, when you open books, what are you doing? You're looking up somebody's record. That's what you're doing. <laughs> you're looking at the evidence for the case. 
You can think of this a lot like the handwriting on the wall back in chapter uh, 5. The books are opened. How do you weigh out in the balances here? So verse 11 says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This is that little horn that came up on the, the fourth beast displacing three other horns. And as I looked, I, I love this. Here's another divine passive. But you, you just have to love this in verse 11. And as I looked, the beast was killed. It's just so simple. So succinct. The beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now what, what right here, what can, you, what, what, what can you really take from that for your heart? Somewhere in your world, maybe you're being affected by power. Some power. The power of a workplace. The power of a school. The power of someone you owe money to. Power of circumstances that are making your life hellish. They have power only because God grants them to have that power. When his purposes for them to exercise that power are finished, God then will take care of you. Don't be afraid, little flock. He is pleased. It is his pleasure. He delights to give you his kingdom. Well, we've got another scene to look at here. The vision is not finished yet for Daniel. And so he's seen now this, this great figure come, sit on the throne, exercise judgment, and destroy the, the little horn. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, what is the first thing that strikes you here? Probably son of man. Why? Because we're so used to hearing Jesus call himself the son of man. But I would suggest before you rush ahead to son of man, you notice something else. Don't miss it. How is this person arriving? He is not coming up out of the sea. He is descending on the clouds of heaven. He doesn't come from the same place as these beasts. He has a different origin. Now, based on this vision alone, placing yourself very much in an Old Testament perspective, I would not argue that this by itself, conclusively would prove deity. But I would argue this. It proves that this figure, this person, is not from the same place you and I are from. 
His origin is not the same as ordinary human beings. He is described as being one like a son of man. What does that mean? That means that he looks like a human being. He's human in form, but he's coming from heaven. He's a heavenly figure who looks like a human being. We'll return to that in just a moment. But it says he's coming with the clouds of heaven, like he's riding chariots of clouds. What is striking as you read the Hebrew Bible, who rides on the clouds? God rides on the clouds. Again, I'm not making an argument here for deity per se. I'm saying this. The Son of Man, think of it this way, the Son of Man is arriving at this courtroom in a limo, but it's the limo of the Ancient of Days. This must be some important person. Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And then down in verse 3, He makes the clouds His chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift... By the way, that's Yahweh. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. See, God coming on the clouds. That's judgment. Egypt's going to be dealt with. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Now who is this? He's coming on the clouds of heaven. He looks like a human being. Who is this? Well, what can we, what can we say from Daniel 7 alone? Well, let's keep reading. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. It doesn't stop there. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, no question. This is Messiah himself. Now you begin to understand why Jesus used this title so much. Here it's not really a title, it's a description, but it became a title and Jesus used it as a title. In fact, it was his preferred way of talking about himself if he used any kind of a title. More often than not, he would call himself the Son of Man. And there's lots of discussion about why that might be. I think perhaps one of the reasons was he could very clearly make a messianic claim, Daniel 7. Everybody would hear Daniel 7 when he called himself the Son of Man. But it would avoid a lot of the wrong connotations of simply coming right out and saying, I'm Messiah, with the expectations so many had of a political conquest of Rome at that time. That at least would be one possible reason that he would use that title. In the milieu, that is, in the, in, the, in the environment of Judaism in Jesus' day, he uses a title which clearly would be understood as a heavenly figure coming to reign and being entrusted with the kingdom by God forever. Jesus did more than use this as a title. He, as much as makes it clear, he is claiming to be the person Daniel 7 talks of. Mark chapter 14 on the screen, again the high priest asked him, this is at his trial, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Think about this. He was 33 years old and he was standing before the authorities of Israel. And he says, I am Daniel 7. And they understood him perfectly because verse 64 or verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, we don't need any other witnesses. You have heard his blasphemy. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Also in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We'll talk some of this next week, another place where I say don't try to interpret that overly literally. Then will appear in heaven the sign of whom? The Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We've swept through history from from Daniel's day all the way to the end when God destroys who we usually call the Antichrist and entrusts the kingdom to his son. What does all this mean that Daniel has seen? It's explained in verse 15 and following. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Do not be afraid. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. These words were written and spoken and conveyed to God's people in exile. Now, we're not going to do it this morning, but you can just do it another time. You can go to the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and chapter 5, and you see a scene not identical to this, different in some respects, but it pictures in many ways the same thing. Chapter 4 of Revelation, you have this glorious vision of God on his throne. Chapter 5, you have the Lamb. God on his throne is holding a scroll that's sealed, and nobody anywhere in heaven and on earth, under the earth, can be found who's worthy to open the scroll. And John begins to weep. He's told, don't, don't weep. Behold the Lamb. He is worthy. As you read the book, he takes the scroll and he begins to open it. As he breaks each seal, then we're given further visions. What are we seeing there in the book of Revelation? We're seeing the same thing we've just seen here in Daniel. God on his throne, gloriously reigning, and his son, his son having all power and all authority. Let me just read for you. Words I think you know so well, but just listen to them. They sang a new song from Revelation chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Do not be afraid. It is his good pleasure to give us his kingdom.